You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Bible passage for today is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if that salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you uh, so much, uh, Sarah. And thank you, Michelle. I don't know that I need to preach after that. I think we were all just <laughs> blown away by that illustration. That was so cool. Uh, love the comments as well. Uh, well, uh, this is, of course, a very famous passage, and I trust it's very familiar to all of us. Uh, this is, of course, the passage where we get our church's name from, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, inspirational passage for us. Uh, last week, of course, we began uh, the Sermon on the Mount series, and I suggested that this whole sermon is about living in the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. This sermon is really God's uh, kingdom manifesto, where Jesus lays out his vision for life under the reign of him as king. Last week, we saw what that looks like within us as God's reign changes our hearts. We saw the gospel story as a person is convicted of their sin and mourns it. They hunger for righteousness, a right relationship with the perfect God, and Jesus satisfies them. Then his grace transforms them and they become meek and merciful. They become peacemakers who've had such a profound experience of God's grace that they want to share that with everyone else around them. So, so last week we saw what happens within us, and this week we see what happens around us. We see the impact that God's people can have as they step out into the world. Because in this passage, we're told that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And today, today I just really want to unpack those two metaphors, what Jesus is trying to say to us and, and what that means for us as individuals and as a community, as a church. All right, well, first of all, let's think about uh, how how we are the salt of the earth, verse 13. Uh, To understand what Jesus is saying here, I think we need to understand the role of salt in the ancient world in the first century. The most obvious use of salt, of course, was that salt was used to produce flavour, to provide flavour. That's what we do today, of course. Salt gives flavour to something and accentuates, it brings out the flavour that's there. Uh, In the same way, the thought is that the church is supposed to bring out the flavour in the world, to be something that tastes good. So John 10 verse 10 says, uh, Jesus says that he has come, that we may have life and have it abundantly. And so there should be a joy, a zest in our lives that really brings flavour to the world. Uh, That's an attractive reading of this metaphor and it's probably a legitimate one. There's actually another reading that I think is probably more likely and that's the one I really want to focus on today. And that is the way that Christians preserve good. 
You see, in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. They didn't have fridges back then, obviously. They didn't even have cool guardie safes. Uh, so they would use salt to preserve things from decay. They'd rub it, uh, salt into meat, for instance, to preserve it. Uh, we still do this sometimes today. We have a lot of South Africans at our church and they'll uh, know of biltong, uh, a cured meat that is preserved by salt. If that's what Jesus is referring to, that means that he's implying that the church's role is to preserve what is good in the world, that the church is here to protect the world from moral and ethical decay. Uh, You see, the world was made good. It was made perfect in Genesis. We're told that it was good and very good. Everything was in its place. Everything was working as it should be because everything was under God's rule, uh, submitting to his wisdom and, and doing what it was designed to do. Sin, however, disrupts that. It sabotages that. Uh, In rebellion, humans uh, defied their creator and and they sabotaged his kingdom and that's affected everything. It's brought a curse on our hearts and so our minds and our passions are disordered and it's also brought decay into the world around us. There is still, however, signs of God's goodness around. His design still is there, sort of like uh, uh, the scaffolding that remains as you're trying to uh, hold something together. And it's the church's job, God's people's job, is, is to preserve that which is good in the world, to prevent against further moral decay. In fact, it's a really serious problem if we fail to do that. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? Now, as one writer explains, strictly speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is a stable compound. I don't know what that means, but it sounds scientific. Um, Jesus knows this, of course, too. Uh, I think what he's saying, though, is that salt can lose its effectiveness if it's mixed in with everything else. It becomes diluted and it becomes useless. It's no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In the same way, God's people can lose their saltiness, their effectiveness as a preserving agent uh, if we get diluted by the world. When instead of being different to the world and preserving that which is good in it, we fall for the same sin that everyone else has. Now, I was trying to think of an example that would kind of illustrate how this works in both a positive and a negative sense, and I was thinking of marriage. This is, of course, one of God's great gifts to the world. Uh, we read in Genesis 2 that this was his design for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's an amazing picture. Uh, they become one thing, physically, of course, but also symbolically. Two people are now one new thing, separate and indivisible. One plus one equals one. And this shared identity becomes their new identity. They hold fast to each other, giving themselves to each other. And this commitment creates the space for this intimacy between them. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed that they could trust each other. They were naked physically because they were naked emotionally, completely open with each other because they could be. They knew that the other person would protect them. This is a beautiful image, uh, one that we're all drawn to, and yet, of course, it feels far away because sin has broken it down. 
And remember what happens. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They knew, they sensed something had changed. They no longer could trust each other. They couldn't be naked because they felt vulnerable. They suddenly were unsure of themselves, unsure if the other person would protect them. Could they trust each other? Their union had been fractured. Two had become one, but now one had become two. And so you see, sin sabotages God's good design, poisoning something that's good and and bringing a decay, a moral decay. And we see that all around us with how marriage uh, has kind of been decayed in lots of places. And yet we also still see that we hunger for God's design for marriage. We see this picture of Adam and Eve and we want that for ourselves. I mean, that's why people still watch romantic movies. That's why we love stories of uh, couples who've been married for 70 years. Even though uh, people will say monogamy is outdated, we still love those stories. Everyone still enters a relationship wondering and hoping that this person is the one that they'll live happily ever after, that this is a person that they can entrust themselves to without shame. This is deep in our souls. It's deep in the world around us, and it's the role of God's people to preserve that. We're called to be salt, to preserve marriage in the world. That's why we fight the temptation of lust and pornography. That's why we deplore domestic violence. That's why we preach against homosexuality and same-sex marriage. That's why we try to rescue people from divorce and so on, because we see all of these things as against God's design. And because God's design is a good design, we do everything we can to protect and preserve it. But that's also why it's so tragic when we lose our saltiness, when our marriages fail to preserve God's good design for marriage. You remember during the plebiscite a few years ago, it was very difficult for churches to mount the case that we were holding on to marriage because people could point to how we failed to do that. Often it's subtle, a kind of uh, ignominy of mediocrity. We've been called to be one flesh, something profoundly connected, and yet it's all too easy for us to live parallel lives, to live alongside each other rather than together. And then, of course, there's lots of overt sin in marriage. Christians use pornography uh, at a horrific rate. The divorce rate is better amongst Christians, but it's still high. I've known men have been broken down and lost all confidence because their wives have not shown them respect. And I've known men who've quoted scripture to excuse their domineering, wife-crushing, abusive behaviour. I remember speaking to one guy who was like this and I said to him that what he was saying as he quoted the scriptures was blasphemous because that's what it is. It's sacrilegious. It's taking something good and holy that God gave and profaning it. That's salt, losing its saltiness. And when that happens, what is it good for? How are we preserving marriage in the world? How are we preserving God's good creation? John Stott uh, says this, when society goes bad, We Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? So when we see things going wrong around the world, 
We need to start with ourselves. Are we truly being the salt that we are called to be? Are we preserving God's good in the world? So Christians have this kind of protective, almost defensive and reactive role, but we also have a proactive and a positive role, and that is to be light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Uh, We are a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, This is a very rich metaphor, and there's lots of things here that we could pick out. The first thing I think we need to see is that there is uh, the reality of darkness in the world around us. Uh, Lots of commentators make the point that darkness was really dark for people in the first century. We're in industrial cities with lots of light pollution. Even when it's nighttime, there's lots of light from the streetlights and the office blocks. But before electricity, before big cities like ours, when it was dark, it was really dark. So so dark you could almost feel it. Uh, And in the middle of that, Jesus has this picture of light breaking in and doing something, dramatically changing the picture. Our world is dark as well, spiritually and morally. It's clothed in the darkness of sin and benighted by ignorance and confusion. It might look glitzy, it might look bright, confident, exciting, tempting, but there's a deep darkness and a darkness that you can almost feel. Uh, We are a city, I believe, that has more brothels than McDonald's restaurants. I was just reading overnight that in Britain there is a do not resuscitate order on people with intellectual disabilities if they get COVID. Mm. Someone with Down syndrome would not be resuscitated. Our culture, of course, is profoundly hypocritical. People boast of our sophistication and compassion, how enlightened we are and how superior we are to those savage ancients back in the past. But this is a a country where 60 to 80,000 babies are aborted every year where people are fighting for the right to leave babies to die if those abortions don't work. There is a great darkness in our world and it needs light. And that's why Jesus came. See, Jesus is the light of the world. That's how he described himself. John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so he's inviting us to step into that life. To, to experience his goodness. Colossians 1, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Ephesians 5, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So, so we experience this light and now we're invited to, to live in that light and to shine it around us. Now, how do we do that? Well, we live out the values of his kingdom. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is his kingdom manifesto of what life looks like under his rule. It's a good rule. It's a life-giving rule. And so as we live out the values of the kingdom, we create something beautiful, something bright. Uh, I think we saw something of what that looks like last week in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And so uh, we live out those values of humility of patience, of care for others, of a desire to make peace with others. That's how we live out this light. Uh, 
I had a lovely uh, example of this just the other day uh, with my wife, which would be horrified that I'm mentioning here. Uh, last week she was invited to a reunion for her mum's group. Uh, back when we had Finn 10 years ago, uh, the local council put her in this mum's group of a random assortment of other mums in the area. They were all complete strangers, but they became friends, uh, deep friends, and, and they've experienced uh, incredible things together, joy, celebration, uh, some horrible tragedies and heartbreaks. And during the night they went around the circle sharing what they appreciated about each other, and it was wonderful what they shared about Ivana, uh, her warmth, her sense of fun, her loyalty, her kindness, her light. Uh, one of them said, look, I don't think I believe in God, but you make me think he might be there. That's living as a light, shining the light of God, being a, a child of light who's experienced the light of the world and is now shining that out. And the wonderful thing is we don't just do this as individuals. We do this together. You see, we are a city on a hill, a group of people. And I, and I love the picture of this. I mean, you think of cities. They're, they're all bustling with energy and life, people coming together to build something significant, something beautiful. And that's what we do, filled with the life of the Spirit. We're empowered to do something good. We are many lights tracing out a city on a hill which makes out the shape of the kingdom of God. And so this week, think about what this looks like for you as an individual. What does it look like? Or as a household, what does it look like for you to be light in your street? As a gospel community, maybe you can talk about this that this week. What can your gospel community do in your area to shine the light of Jesus? See, I love this picture of, of this city on a hill, uh, light going out into the darkness that draws people in. Both of these things are happening. It's a wonderful privilege that we have. And yet despite this, we read here that there is a chance that we will not do it. Verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He's implying here that there is often a, a kind of a danger that we might hide the light. It's not that it's being shut down or snuffed out by someone else, but actually we are failing to show it. And there's a few reasons why we might do this. Uh, for one thing, we might not shine our light out into the world because we're dismissive or judgmental of everyone else. We disdain the world and pull away from it. We withdraw from it, and so we're not uh, shining our light out into it. Sometimes this might be because we desire to be holy, but it's still a failure. Uh, not far from the mount where Jesus was preaching, there was a community called the Essenes, uh, a sect that had chosen to withdraw itself from society to stay pure. They called themselves the sons of the light, but no one could see it. They were, their light was under a bushel. So one reason is we might just be kind of dismissive of the world. Another reason is we might be embarrassed. I know growing up, Christians were just seen as total losers, uh, just totally uncool, and so it was tempting to hide the light because we didn't want to be seen like that. And then I think there was a time uh, where we tried to really make ourselves as relevant as possible, but in the process I think we, we actually ended up dimming the light by compromise. Uh, we can be so desperate to fit in that we lose our distinctiveness. And so uh, you find churches that are constantly trying to suck up to the culture, whether it's by just preaching to the consumer with things like the 
prosperity gospel or by compromising truth and rejecting anything that's hard or awkward in the scriptures. And so we, we fail to shine our light. We, we hide our light by, by not showing the truth. Or we might hide the light because we are afraid. Uh, I see this as a very real danger to us now. See, the landscape has shifted. The church is no longer seen as an authority. We're, we're being progressively pushed out of the public square. We, we've tried for years to fit in, but now we're just being thrown out. And it's already begun with the, the laws that are coming into effect in Victoria. And I think this is only going to continue. In such an environment, it's very tempting for us to run and hide, to, to hide the light, to retreat and protect what we have. But we can't because the world needs us. They might not realise this. They might not want us. Some might even hate us. But they need light. The world is in darkness and we are the light that needs to shine in it. We are the salt that this world needs to preserve. We are light shining from another world, the world of heaven, shining into the darkness of this world. And if we do this, we will have an impact. Verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, there will be some who reject us, but there will be others who will not, who will see us and sense God. Uh, They'll see us and realise that God is in us. They'll see God and they'll see their sin. They'll see their sin and they'll see God's grace. They'll see God's grace and they'll be transformed by it. And so they will start to look like God. And then the circle continues again. They'll start to look like God. So others will see God. And so it goes on. Christians living like Christians make an impact. When we are a city on a hill, people stop and stare in wonder. I love how this passage this week comes straight after the Beatitudes. They're right next to each other. You see, the Beatitudes are a very humbling piece of Scripture, and they help us to see that God's people are really small. They're poor in spirit because they see their own spiritual bankruptcy. They mourn their sin. They're sober. They're self-aware. They're meek. They don't presume on their place in the world. They don't demand their rights. They're merciful. And yet for all their nobility, they're persecuted and reviled. People hate them. So you would think that these people who are so submissive and humble and persecuted would have no impact in the world. We'd just be crushed. But actually, we do have an impact. We are salt, preserving what is good and light, shining God's truth into the darkness. The church is an outpost of heaven. It's the point of contact between heaven and earth, the place where God meets with the world when his light bursts out of us. This is the place where God's presence is felt, his good rule is seen and exemplified and experienced. Uh, I'm often encouraged by uh, something called the Epistle to Diognetus. It was a document that's dates from around 130 AD, and it really reflects on the impact that Christians had in the first century of Christianity. It's someone describing how different, how unique, how strange and how beautiful Christians are. It goes like this. They, they pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. 
they obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and yet are persecuted by all. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonoured and yet in their very dishonour are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honour. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing how much that letter mirrors the words of Beatitudes. They're poor, yet they make many rich. They're dishonoured and reviled, and yet they bless. They're in the world, but they carry the glory of heaven. That's what we can be. That's what the church is, the point of contact between God and the world, the place where God's presence is felt, his good rule is seen and experienced. Mm-hmm. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage, a wonderful passage that's both uh, convicting and exciting and inspiring. Lord, help us to be salt, the salt of the earth, preserving the good that still is here. Help us to take upon ourselves the work, the duty of protecting and and preserving morality in our world. Help us to be courageous in that. And then help us to be light, to not just be reactive but proactive. You are the light of the world, so may you shine so deeply in our hearts that we are transformed by you and we become a light in the world. May we do that as individuals, as gospel communities, as friends, And as a church altogether, help us to be lights that mark out your kingdom, that invite people to come to you. May we be uh, a people that are attractive and interesting, uh, a people that uh, has an impact on the world around us. May we shine in the darkness so so that people can see your light. We pray all of these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.